Thank you for downloading this podcast from Pardes, North America. This episode of the Pardes Parsha podcast features Rabbi Nechama Goldman Barish and Rabbi Elchanan Miller on Parshat Lech Lecha. For the latest episode of the Parsha podcast, please visit elmod.pardes.org. And now, Rabbi Nechama Goldman Barish and Rabbi Elchanan Miller. Hi, Nechama. I'm excited that we're going to be taping this podcast together on a Parsha that I find really quite fascinating. A lot of great stories, hard to decide uh, which text to focus on, but we have to focus. And um, I want to take us to the story of the famine that appears in chapter 12, verse 10, um, where Avram has to go down to Egypt. He has to leave the land God has sent him to without any direction from God kind of making a decision on the fly in order to protect his family, in order to protect his uh, his assets and, and, of course, his life. And he leaves the country. He goes down to, uh, to the land of Egypt. And as he approaches, he suddenly recognizes that there is a danger he hasn't thought of, which is the danger presented to him by his beautiful wife, Sarah. So I'm going to take us into the story. I'm going to read a few of the verses to kind of set the background. And so he's almost reached Egypt and he turns to his wife, Sarai. And the text is very clear throughout the story. She's very much his wife, which I think reinforces the idea of the partnership between the two, the relationship between the two. And he says to her, I, you know, I know, look, I now know what a beautiful woman you are. And he says, like, I know they're going to kill me when they hear you're my wife and they'll take you and keep you alive so, you know, you can marry someone else. And please say that you're my sister. And so he doesn't impose this upon her. He does ask this of her. So she has a choice, so to speak. And um, and then he says, that way it'll go well for me and my life will be spared. So he's very vulnerable in this moment. He needs his wife to essentially sacrifice herself, as we're going to see, for him to stay alive. But he's very aware of her as wife, right? She's she's very much uh, someone he 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 cares for and uh, and speaks to, not at. Uh, and the Mitzrayim are just amazed. They see this woman and she's very beautiful. And they basically begin to talk about her to Paro. And in the next verse, basically take her to the house of Paro. And what happens next is also complicated because Avram becomes very wealthy. He becomes very wealthy as a result of Sarah. Pharaoh thinks it's his sister, and the brother in the patriarchal world would be like the father, right, and would be rewarded on account of the women in the family. And then what happens is, God comes in and saves Sarah from the, uh, from the house of Pharaoh, and then Pharaoh gets very upset and says to Avram, and I'm skipping a little bit, he basically says, Why did you do this to me? Why didn't you tell me Ki Ishtachahi? Why didn't he tell why didn't you tell me she's your wife? You you caused me to do something immoral, right? And the Isha, I took her as wife. And now Hine Ishtacha Like basically, take your wife back. 
and go. And so it, there's a Lech shadow here as well, right? Yeah. Go back to your, to your, um, so any thoughts about the story? I have one thing I want to highlight, but any thoughts you want to bring off and on? Well, clearly it's a very jarring story to read, uh, by modern people in the 21st century, because it seems on the pshat level, on the on, on the textual level, that Avraham is using Sarah um, to save his own life, and in, in, in essence, sacrificing her to, to, to Paro um, in order to save himself. She, her voice is silent. We don't hear her position here, which is maybe part of the point. Um, and it's Avraham who takes the initiative, and it's Sarah who goes along with it sort of complacently. And that will change later on, right, when we see Sarah is more proactive with Hagar, which, which you'll talk about soon. But um, I think one of the questions is, how do we understand these negaim, these afflictions? So if you see Paro as a kidnapper who takes Sarah, um, and that's a direction that Nachmanides will go in, where essentially, yes, they agreed to deceive Paro as a precaution, but they never come to that point because Paro doesn't even ask them. He simply kidnaps Sarah. And Nachmanides, this uh, 13th century Catalan, uh, you know, Sephardi commentator, insists that neither Sarah nor Avraham ever lied to Paro. Mm -hmm. They were complete victims, both of them, mm -hmm. um, to Paro's licentiousness. Um, and so if we see uh, Sarah as, as a victim of this, then... Um, maybe these negaim are a punishment to Paro. But if we go maybe more with the pshat that sees in a sense that Paro is a victim of Avraham's um, deception, at the least, then maybe it's like a red light. It's, a, it's, it's saving Paro, in a sense, from sinning um, and, and being deceived by, by Avraham. So you can see these negaim in two different ways, depending on how you judge the actions of Paro and Avraham. Right, either a punishment or a sense, a wake-up call for him to re-examine the situation and say, wait a minute, I've been duped and I've been illicitly or unknowingly uh, conducting adultery, which goes against my own moral... Exactly, moral which is what he says. And it seems in the shot that he himself doesn't want mm -hmm. to commit adultery or commit a moral crime. So we have these two levels. On the one hand, Avraham is this... Uh, holy person, as a person who God steps in to save and who is the father of our nation, the readers of this text, but also we see a very humane, a human and maybe even moral paro at the same time. Mm -hmm. And I would say, you know, uh, verse 19 says, Lama Marta Achotihi. I wonder what the Ramban does with that, because on one hand, there does seem to be silence. We don't have dialogue where they say to Avram, who is this woman, but then Paro at least has heard or has been told that it is his sister. Uh, so again, the question of how innocent was Faro, how much of a victim was he, remains elusive in the text. Um, I want to go back a little bit um, to something that we, we brought up a little earlier and then and something that I want to highlight. And first of all, you know, we, we're critical of Avram through a modern lens. On the other hand, um, is it in Sarah's interest that Avram be killed? In other words, you're going to have a woman essentially uh, left alone, right? Now she'll be a widow, but then she'll really have no agency. In other words, you know, she is silent. On the other, and, you know, on the other hand, as I pointed out, he asks her, "Will you consent to uh, say you're my sister?" Much later in Breshit, we discover they share a father and not a mother. At least that's how the story goes in a parallel text about Avimelech, where something similar happens. Um, so it's not an outright lie, and half-siblings would have married in the ancient Near East. That would not have been unthinkable. Um, so, you know, I wonder if it's not for her own good also, the idea that she would lose her husband because of her beauty. 
So I want to talk about her beauty for a minute because um, throughout Breshid and then later on also in the King David stories and in the uh, Miquelad Esther stories, we have beautiful people. And what I find compelling is that in just about every story, a beautiful person is um, is in danger of being, you know, visualized or objectified. And, and this happens whether it's a beautiful woman like Sarah and then Rivka is going to have a similar situation or Yosef as a beautiful man. In other words, I think there's a message here that um, the Torah recognizes the reader, readers. We often overvalue beauty. And what we don't recognize is there's also consequence and price. There might be privilege. There might be entitlement. There might be uh, opportunity. But at the core of these stories is a certain danger. And Sarai is in danger because of her beauty. And, um, and suddenly Avram is seeing her through the eyes of this foreign people, this foreign nation. They're not living in kind of a vacuum, traveling around uh, almost unnoticed, uh, maybe by the Canaanites or wherever they're coming from. But in Egypt, he recognizes her beauty is suddenly going to become a focal point for their visual uh, visual field, um, and they're going to objectify her and take her. And, and I, I find that particularly compelling today where, where many people are overly seduced or attracted or trying to achieve levels of beauty without recognizing that there are prices to pay for, uh, for being overly obvious or over, overly visualized. And I think this is one of those stories where, where Sarai is in real danger because of it. Right. So do you think that there's an educational message here that the Torah is trying to convey about beauty? I mean, we know Sheker HaChen Behevel HaYofi, right? Uh, and elsewhere in the Tanakh, we, we try to sort of demean or, or at least warn against uh, overemphasizing beauty. What, what do you think the message is here in this text? So I, I usually teach this text a part of a series. I look at all the stories together or as, I, I loop a few of them together and I talk about um, the opportunity that comes with beauty, clearly Esther and Joseph are both able to use their beauty to achieve salvation. But um, on a much more basic level, there is, uh, there is a danger as well. It's a double-edged sword. Opportunity, you have to learn how to use it. On the other hand, it also comes with danger. And, um, and I think it's a warning, right? If, you, if we look at stories like Ruth and Moshe, Moshe stories, there's no beauty in those stories. There's a lot of chesed, there's leadership, there's strength, there's power, there are a lot of things, but there's no beauty. And I think the message in these stories is um, beauty often seduces. Pharaoh is seduced by her beauty, but then suddenly the nikaim wake him up to realize, wait a minute, there's a consequence for this seduction that I wasn't aware of, and now I'm, I'm protesting that I fell into this. So I think it, it, it relates to the complexity of things that we often try to simplify. We think beauty is the answer to all of our problems, and the stories come and say, no, no, not so fast. Yeah, and I think that the beauty that's brought forward in the pshat, in the text itself, is juxtaposed or, neg or negated to the ugliness of the Egyptians uh, brought forward by the Midrash and by the classic commentators. And they say some things that really wouldn't fly today uh, about the Egyptians, that uh, Rashi and Radak, they say that the Egyptians were ki'urim, were ugly people, they were dark people. So this very kind of almost racist uh, approach, you know, to negate or, or juxtapose Sarah and the people who lusted after her, including Paro, but there's this mix between the um, aesthetic and the ethical. Mm -hmm. Because they are so ugly, then they would automatically lust for her and immorally treat her because of her immense beauty. So we have this mix between the uh, aesthetic and the ethical. 
And I think it goes much deeper than that. And this is a trend we see throughout the beginning of Bereshit, where I think the Torah is trying to construct this um, dichotomy between the righteousness of Abraham, Avraham, and his tribe or his clan, uh, including Lot, which we'll see more of in the next week's parsha, and the surrounding nations, in, uh, if it's the Egyptians now, if it's the Canaanites in Sodom um, in the next parsha, where, and, and it revolves often around sexual behavior. So Avraham is someone who is cognizant of, of sexual boundaries, of the sanctity of marriage, whereas the Egyptians don't care about that, and they simply abduct a beautiful woman. Um, we'll see this again coming with Sodom uh, next week, where uh, it's Lot who's trying to preserve uh, uh, the, the, the sexual integrity of his guests, who is more cognizant of boundaries, and the people of Sodom are sinners. And so we have this... Um, construct of Avraham is somebody who protects uh, sexual boundaries, um, I think. And the Brit Milah that the Parsha will end with, uh, where Abraham circumcises himself and his son Ishmael, is also, I think, a symbol of the centrality of sexuality in our tradition. Um, but there's a political undertone here. There is a nation in building, right? There is the beginnings of a... Um, a nation that is going to be created throughout Sefer Bereshit and into Shemot, where what is it that defines our forefathers? And one of the things that will define Avraham as our forefather is the fact that he cares about sexual boundaries. And that, I think, distinguishes the way we see ourselves as distinct from the other nations around us. And that ties in well, before I push back a little, I'll say Kedoshim you, right? If we go to Leviticus, where we see this mandate to be holy, Rashi, in his commentary, says the sum totality of holiness is sexual boundaries, right? And really in that chapter, which is chapter um, 18 in Leviticus, we're continuously told not to be like the Canaanites and the Egyptians. So that ties in well to a thread that will be picked up much later when the nation is being commanded towards sexual discipline, sexual boundaries, not celibacy, right? Not, uh, not completely asceticism and veering away from sexuality, but clear distinction in relationship. Uh, I think that ties in well with what you're saying. There it gets codified, right? Do not be like the Canaanites and the Egyptians with regard to sexual behavior. Um, but I want to circle back a little bit to, to this week's Parsha and next week's Parsha. Because on one hand, I think you're right that both Abraham and Lot are looking for sexual boundaries. But in the process, or, or you know, sexual morality, there's something cloudy, murky, sticky even. Because what Avram ends up doing is essentially gives his wife to Pharaoh in order to protect his own life, assuming that adultery in Egypt, um, well, he's not sure what the status of adultery is, but he's sure they're going to take his wife and use her and objectify her, which, which they do. Meaning Pharaoh even says, I took her as wife. We can't ignore the implications that he, he actually had sexual relationship with her as a, as a wife. It's not Avimelech who we're told later in the story, God prevents from even touching Sarah. Here, she seems to be living with him for a continuous amount of time. So his intention is one thing, but in reality, right, she ends up crossing the, the boundary and Pharaoh gets very upset. Uh, of course, later in the story, Sarah does the same thing to Hagar. She takes this Egyptian slave girl and she essentially gives her to Avram, into Avram's bed to be, to be like a wife, right? And, and she becomes pregnant with Yishmael and so on. So, you know, there's complexity here with Lot as well. Lot, on one hand, protects his guests. On the other hand, he's ready to throw out his virgin daughters who end up in the end, well, they don't just seduce him. They essentially 
without his consent, get him drunk and become pregnant by him. And yet they give birth to Moab and Ammon who become leaders, right? Like you have all this complexity that speaks to the turbulence perhaps of the emergence of Avram as a moral beacon, right. but it's not smooth and it's not clean and it's not clear and uh, and we have to grapple with that. Yeah, and I think that's really the brilliance of the Torah. We, we mentioned that at the beginning that Pharaoh is not is neither a saint nor a villain and neither is Avraham. Avraham gets criticized by the commentators, Nachmanides, who we mentioned before, for allowing Sarah to mistreat Hagar. So Unlike other traditions where, you know, the, the characters of the Bible are either saints or villains are kind of flat. Here we have a very deep and intricate sort of depiction of these characters. Um, and, you know, Avraham here in one sense protects Sarah. On the other hand, protects himself. Um, Pharaoh is not just this immoral person, but also somebody who confronts Avraham with the fact that he misled him. And it's not just Avraham who guards the sexual boundaries of, 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 of people, but also Avraham who Avraham is also someone who's righteous and tells the truth. So I think uh, this story, on the one hand, confronts us with the fact that Avraham wasn't exactly being honest here. And it's none other than Pharaoh who confronts him with the fact that he was misled. So we learn about what is right and what is wrong in the Torah, not just from the mouths of the tzaddikim, of the righteous people, but also from the mouths of people who are um, the archetyp arch archetypical enemies of Judaism, you know, of our tradition, like Pharaoh and like the Egyptians. We can learn lessons from multiple characters, I think, in the Torah. I think that's the beauty of Sefer Breshit, that we're on this journey where the narratives are compelling because they are complex and because we turn them around and turn them around and we can read multiple commentaries and we can choose the direction through which we want to read the story. And, um, and ultimately we can keep finding ourselves in the story and finding inspiration from the strengths and the weaknesses that emerge um, within the, the patterns of behavior and within the challenges that the, the people in the stories are uh, being challenged with. Fascinating stuff. Um, thank you, Nechama, for uh, speaking to me today. And it was a great conversation. And thank you, listeners. Uh, for listening to this uh, Parsha podcast and uh, see you next time. Yes, thank you. Thank you, Elchanan. And uh, yeah, enjoy. Thank you again for downloading this podcast, a production of Pardes North America. If you liked what you just heard, please give us a five-star review wherever you download your podcasts. Be sure to follow us on Spotify for the latest episodes of the Pardes Parsha podcast.